0: Uh, let me begin with a reading from Scripture, very pertinent to the theme we're going to be considering together, and then we will open our time in prayer and commend ourselves to the Lord. Philippians chapter 4, four Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything. But in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Our Heavenly Father, we gather in your presence this day, and we want to worship you and proclaim your excellencies, acknowledge your greatness and your goodness. You are indeed the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, the one who alone possesses immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no man has seen nor can see. And yet we praise you, our Father, because you have drawn near to us and drawn us to yourselves. In and through your Son, Jesus Christ, we praise you for this firm foundation upon which we now stand, your grace toward us in Christ Jesus. And so we want to offer up our thanks, we want to express the gratitude of our hearts as we consider what we once were, what we now are. And we thank you that we enjoy peace with you. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And we are also exceedingly thankful that this peace which surpasses all understanding is at our disposal daily. And you command us not to be anxious about anything, but to bring our petitions, our burdens, our cares, our anxieties, and lay them at your feet, knowing that you are indeed at hand at all times. You, the King of kings and Lord of lords, reign supreme over all things. You hold your people in the palm of your hand. We are indeed the apple of your eye. And may this impart much comfort in the midst of trial, peace in the midst of dire circumstances, steadfastness as we face trials and tribulations. For the long day ahead of us, we commend ourselves to you. Pray that you impart mental and physical strength. And may our time of learning be for our good, your glory. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, it's great to be with you. Uh, My name is is Stephen Ewell. Um, I'm a professor of uh, church history and spiritual formation up at Southwestern Baptist Theological Seminary in Fort Worth, professor of church history. How did I wander into this? I've had an interest in biblical counseling going back 11, 12, 13 years, and have been engaged in this movement, for lack of a better expression, for some time now, and it is an exceeding joy and pleasure and blessing to be with you today. If you have any questions concerning studies at Southwestern, Swivitz, as we call it, or Texas Baptist College, feel free to talk to me at some point during the day. Uh, we do offer, well, all of our courses, you can audit them, physically present or online. And so if you're maybe interested in auditing a course at some point and uh, just growing in terms of your knowledge of different things, check us out. I'll even put in a plug for a course I'm teaching next semester, uh, starting middle of January, Monday nights, John Calvin. No, no response. All right. <laughs> That usually stirs quite a response, but anyway, we're going to look at the theology of John Calvin on Monday nights, so if that's something that might interest you, again, feel free to uh, come speak with me at some point. So you've got your handout, right? You've got your notes, Slaying the Meandering Monster, and just before we get to those notes, let me begin with just a few preliminary remarks. Here is the first. it consumes us. When it gets hold, it will not let go. It captivates our thoughts and overruns our emotions. It dampens our joy and disrupts our peace. It wraps its tentacles around our souls, tightening its grip until it saps us of all strength. It keeps us from eating and sleeping. It keeps us from enjoying those good gifts which God so graciously bestows upon us it consumes us secondly it overwhelms us it leads to heart palpitations and shortness of breath it induces sweating trembling and shaking it leads to a loss of focus energy appetite it leads to nervousness irritability panic weariness insomnia hypersomnia It can be so overwhelming that it makes us feel detached from ourselves, like we're losing control, like we're going crazy. It overwhelms. Thirdly, it hinders us. Have I depressed anybody yet? It hinders us. When it has us in its clutches, we aren't much fun to be around. It strains relationships in the home. It strains relationships among believers. On top of that, it makes us so inward-looking that it renders us useless, when it comes to serving others, it puts us on edge. It makes us inattentive, unresponsive, and unsympathetic. One more it deceives us. It promises to help us, but it never contributes one iota to resolving any of our problems. It doesn't provide any sound advice or deep insight. It doesn't render any peace or comfort. It takes all our time and produces nothing. It takes all our energy and renders nothing. It takes and takes and takes and takes and gives absolutely nothing in return. And I'm speaking, of course, of worry, anxiety, sinful fear. I don't know where this definition came from. I wish I had coined it, but alas, I did not. It is excellent. Worry is a small trickle of fear that meanders through the mind until it cuts a channel into which all other thoughts are drained. Any worriers out there? Don't put your hand up because I know the answer to the question. Anybody up at 2 o'clock this morning worrying? There you are lying on your bed for hours just thinking about this, thinking about that going over some miserable circumstance from last week or two months ago or 20 years ago. or anticipating something next week, next month, living in this world of hypothetical situations. A small trickle of fear that meanders through the mind until it cuts a channel into which all other thoughts are drained. Okay, so listen to this scenario. Mary... It's not my story, someone else's story. He named the individual. Mary was growing increasingly anxious and beginning to experience panic attacks. These intensified over time. She finally confided in a friend who put her in contact with a Christian counselor. At the first session, Mary shared that she was worried about her husband's risky financial investments, which jeopardized much of their retirement savings. The Christian counselor offered comfort from Scripture, assuring Mary that God knew what was happening. He arranged for Mary and her husband to attend a financial planning class at their church. And he provided guidance as to how Mary and her husband could communicate better when making big decisions. And so what was the problem? As far as this Christian counselor was concerned, to put it simply, a risky financial investment That was the problem. What was the remedy? Number one, understanding God cares. Number two, acquiring better financial skills. Number three, cultivating better communication skills. You got it? Sadly, the Christian counselor went absolutely nowhere near Mary's problem. Flew right over, 30,000 feet flyover, and never actually dealt with the issue at hand. Sinful worry, sinful fear, sinful anxiety. Here's my one book recommendation, probably copies in the bookstore. Did anyone take a look to see? They are there. I don't know how many they've got, but they're usually well stocked. Triumphing over sinful fear, uh, penned by a man named John Flavel. We're going back hundreds of years into the 1600s. Don't worry, the language has been modernized and updated to make it very accessible for the modern reader. But there is a tremendous help, a tremendous resource, a tremendous guide into this important subject. And so we want to unpack then, if we were meeting with Mary, and if Mary had come to us, and if Mary had presented that scenario exactly as I've described it to you and explained it, what would we say? How would we respond? How would we firstly assess things and how would we seek to speak God's truth into her life? I do not deny for a moment that, yes, understanding God cares is pretty important. It's right up there. I don't I don't minimize the fact that, yes, she and her husband probably need to take some sort of financial management class, how to manage your household income, expenses, all of that. That's good, sure. Communication skills, we can always be working on that. I'm not minimizing that. I'm not denying that. I'm not refuting it. But in terms of Mary as an individual and what is really ailing her, troubling her, Um, How would we assess her situation? And how would we seek to be used of the Lord to speak truth into her life? So that's the question we want to answer. The answer, if you just skim through your notes, is basically going to fall under two major headings. First of all, we need to understand the nature of sinful fear. We need to understand what we're talking about. What is it? Be clear in our definition so that we can be clear in our assessment. And then once we're clear in our assessment... Then we can be equally clear and concise in terms of, secondly, prescribing a remedy. So that's how we're going to proceed. Firstly, then, the nature of sinful fear. And we do need to be careful. We want to think in terms of causality. So I trust this is helpful. I could probably spend the entire hour just talking about this slide. Time will not permit. just want to give it to you so that you are aware. When we engage with someone who is conveying to us You know, I'm awake at night, I'm a mess, lack of communication with my family, not eating, hypersomnia, insomnia, not engaging, worry, and the grip of fear, etc., etc., etc. We need to think potentially in terms of four ways. Number one, a natural response due to an imminent threat. That's just natural fear. Something is threatening them. And therefore, they are afraid. Something is threatening their well being, a health diagnosis, whatever the case may be. Therefore, they are experiencing fear. So, that might be the first cause. Be clear on that. A natural response due to an imminent threat. More on that in just a few moments. Secondly, it might be a behavioral response due to a physical ailment. We do have to have some category here, folks. We do. Because those of us who are older, we know this, men and women, we change physiologically as we get older. And that physiological change at times can have a very detrimental effect upon us. We don't want to discard that, ignore it, or minimize it. And we need to acknowledge at times there are physical ailments that can manifest themselves in this category that we might designate worry. So we need that. Thirdly, it might be a spiritual response due to conviction for sin. So someone is laboring under the hand of God and they feel like they are drowning. The waves of God's displeasure overwhelming them because they know they've transgressed God's law. They know they've been living in habitual sin. They know they're offside in terms of their relationship with God. And this is now manifesting itself in something that we might call like anxiety. And then fourthly, a sinful response due to idolatry, which is what we are primarily interested in in this session. And I submit to you, it is what, in our scenario, Mary was primarily wrestling with. A sinful response due to idolatry. So you have those four categories, and you see what we're going to hone in on and give our utmost attention to. When you, when you enter into the world and this whole question then of anxiety and stress and fear, I mean, we recognize, we acknowledge that insofar as the world is concerned, there are only basically two categories. There are only two ways to address this issue. So going back to the previous slide, they have no category for number four, a sinful response due to idolatry, and yet it is the most prevalent cause. When we engage in the world, basically the realm of the psychiatrist, he or she is looking at absolutely everything through a biological lens. And in terms of causality, that is how the psychiatrist is thinking. And so the diagnosis will always fall in the realm of the hormonal or the physiological. Therefore, you're on a train track. You know already before you even begin what the remedy is going to be. Because if if there's only one possible explanation for the ailment hormonal or physiological, then there's only one possible remedy, and it is medication. And so that is psychiatry. That is the world, the closed arena in which the psychiatrist typically functions. The psychologist would not necessarily deny psychiatry at all, but his or her expertise is in a different realm. He or she is looking at everything through an existential lens, behavioral And the diagnosis will always focus in on experiences. This is cause and effect, cause and effect. Every effect has a cause, and that cause will always be what? Present or past experiences. Absolutely everything can be explained by something that has happened to us or something we have gone through. Well, if you're on that train track and you can't get off... And if this is determining then your assessment of a situation, it will of necessity determine your remedy, which will always then fall within the realm of psychotherapy. And so we acknowledge in the world, these are the two schools of thought, paradigms, with which people are typically working. And we are suggesting, we are affirming that in actual fact, the most common cause of sinful fear, worry, anxiety, is well beyond the realm of the psychotherapy. Psychiatrist and the psychologist because it is actually that fourth one right there, a sinful response due to idolatry. And so we need to recognize that when we limit causes, we necessarily limit remedies. And that's the world we live in because we live in a naturalistic world, naturalistic worldview. Everything therefore has to be explained through those two lenses, either the behavioral, that is the existential, or the biological or the chemical. It is a closed arena, a naturalistic worldview. And as Christians we're pushing back hard against that and we are affirming no, you've you've missed the most important factor. You've actually missed you've actually missed the main point. Uh, we are creatures fashioned in the image of God. And we are relational beings by nature. And much, most, the vast majority of those things that ail us can actually be explained relationally as creatures that have wandered far from their Creator. And because we have wandered so far from our Creator... And find ourselves in bondage to sin and to temptation. That consequence of the fall manifests itself in a myriad of ways in our lives. And so that's the road we want to go down. We don't, we're not completely dismissive of the biological. Let's not go that far. We are not dismissive of the existential. We acknowledge, yes, yes, biological, existential, that's fine. But primarily, far eclipsing these, it is the relational that should occupy our attention and our focus. And that's where the Christian counselor missed it all together when it comes to Mary. Because the Christian counselor was coming at it from the vantage point of the psychiatrist. Mary, your anxiety can be explained by your current circumstances. Your husband made a stupid decision, and he made a very silly investment. And now you're struggling with the worry and the anxiety associated with that. Well, if you just change your circumstances, that will remedy what? Your worry. Yeah, until the next what? Crisis. And then what? The next crisis. And then the next crisis. Why? Because the Christian counselor wasn't actually going anywhere near the real problem, which was always relational. Mary's relationship with God. And so we want to be clear then when we talk about fear, worry, anxiety. We're narrowing in, narrowing our focus so that we really understand the nature of fear. And we want to make sure that we guard at all times. We have this category. We recognize that there is such a thing as natural fear. It is our response when an object threatens us. And I want to be absolutely clear on this. Natural fear is a good thing. God made us this way. If something is threatening our well-being, we should fear it. It is a very healthy coping mechanism whereby fight or flight then kicks in. Very natural God-given response when something seems to be threatening our well-being. And so there's a picture of uh, my wife Allison and I and uh, that picture actually says a great deal about our relationship. I'm working hard and she's smiling for the camera. But anyway, <laughs> don't have time to go there. This is 32 years ago when we were 10 years old. Yeah, <laughs> it's a long time ago. And we are, uh, I wouldn't do it today. We're kayaking above, the, above Victoria Falls in Zimbabwe. <laughs> There's no way I would do it today. And I would never allow my children to do it today. But anyway, we did it. And we were with a group of, a group of friends. And, um, before we embarked on this little kayaking journey, we're on the shore eating breakfast. Our guide warns us that the Zambezi is a wild river full of crocodiles. But not, don't, don't worry about them. You stay in your kayak, they will not bother you. But the hippos, the hippos are another matter entirely. And they have been known on occasion to strike from below when they feel threatened. And he says, well, if that happens, they will vaporize your kayak. So a little fear and trepidation, off we went. And wouldn't you know it, toward the end of our little kayaking adventure, what did we see? A bunch of hippos. So here's the question, folks. What did I experience at that moment? I'm not ashamed to publicly admit it. Fear. I'm very comfortable in my masculinity. I experienced unbelievable fear at that moment anything wrong with that that's a gift of God and I began to paddle unlike I had ever paddled hitherto in my life why to get away from the perceived threat the perceived danger so are we all crystal clear on this because invariably what happens after a session like this someone comes up riddled with guilt or whatever because they're afraid of something a health diagnosis or something that's going on and they feel like they're sinning they're doing something wrong no 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 friends there is such a thing as nat- there are things we should be afraid of a lot of things and that's healthy and that's good that is called natural fear something threatens us so are we clear making eye contact so if you come up to me and talk to me afterwards about, the, feel free to, it's okay. But I just want to be. I'm just going to point you back to what I, I trust I have, I have emphasized and made as clear as I possibly can, that we are in no way diminishing or discarding, or repudiating or ridiculing what uh, we often do experience, natural fear. What we're concerned with is sinful fear. Our response when we ascribe ultimate power or value to an object. Do you see the difference? When I ascribe ultimate power to the object of my fear, that then becomes sinful fear. Because I've turned the object of my fear into an idol. When I ascribe ultimate value to something, and as a result, fear or experience anxiety well I am now guilty of sinful fear because that is a too is a subtle form of idolatry. So here we go. A friend of mine years ago walked out of his house, and there was this little neighbor waiting for him. And at that moment that's a diamond back for you in the back. Uh, at that moment what did he experience? Fear. Anybody had a problem with that? Very healthy response. And he did a U-turn and went right back inside the house. Okay? Natural fear. Now imagine this. He said to his wife, "Darling, pack your bags. We're moving north. (laughs) That's it. We are done with Texas. I'm quitting my job as of now. Just take what you can cram into a suitcase. We're gone. Okay, if that is his response... His natural fear has actually become what? Sinful fear. Why? Because he has ascribed ultimate power to the object of his fear. Natural fear becomes sinful fear. When we ascribe ultimate power, power to an object. That's idolatry. Why? Because once God has spoken, twice have I heard this. Power belongs to God. So if we are actually responding to something and it grips us and overwhelms us and is now controlling us and manipulating us, just taken over, you know you are ascribing something to that thing that does not belong to it. And it's entirely possible you are ascribing an attribute of God to that thing power itself hence it is again our word idolatry here's another scenario i think that was hurricane i think that was ike what year was that 2008 wow it's a long time ago now 15 years ago and so there we are let's imagine it we live on the coast and that thing is hurling toward us 24 hours out and the warnings come clear out head north head for higher ground and uh what's our response We fear. That's a good thing. And we uh, get uh, sheets of plywood over the windows, maybe, and we pack up the family and the the dog, and we get into the minivan, and we head for Granbury, wherever, somewhere way away from the coast to wait it out. Nothing wrong with that kind of fear and taking steps to minimize, avoid the fear. Now imagine this scenario. It comes on, and... um, I hear that. I shut down. I just sit down on my living room floor. Darling, you take care of everything I can't cope. And uh, completely disengaged from the kids. No longer counseling them, guiding them, caring for them. Um, Just a grump, grouch, can't focus. Kick the dog whenever I walk across the living room. And um, my whole world now is unraveling. And I don't know how I'm ever going to get through life. Um, what's happened to my natural fear? It has become sinful fear. Why? Because I've ascribed ultimate value to something. Something that I think I'm about to lose. Sense of control over the situation. The inconvenience of having to vacate. My house being Gone, Wiped away by a storm. You see, natural fear becomes sinful fear when we ascribe ultimate value to an object. That too is idolatry. Why? Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. Is this making sense? Oh, we need clarity here to avoid many pitfalls and dangers. Yeah? Coming across... As clear as the noonday sun, I trust the subtlety of idolatry. And so you think back to Mary. Our scenario, a financial, risky, unwise financial investment. And um, should Mary have been concerned? Yes. Should Mary have had a eye-to-eye, nose-to-nose conversation with her husband? Yes. Should they have sought some counsel to help them out financially? Definitely. Did they need to improve in terms of their communication and decision-making process? Definitely. She should be concerned. Yes, we want to think in terms of fear as to what this might mean. Fine. But Mary crosses a line to the point where she's not sleeping. Uh, She's disengaging from family, from work. Uh, She's having a hard time making it through the day. Uh, This now has a grip on her. It has a hold on her. And her natural fear has crossed the line into sinful fear. Why? Because she's actually ascribing what? Value to something other than God. Whereby those finances are now what is dictating her 24-7. Controlling her life. Her absolute mood swings, what she thinks when she gets up in the morning, what she's thinking about at 2 o'clock in the morning as she's just rolling around there on, on the bed, and, and her life is now at the mercy of something other than God. The Christian council didn't go anywhere near it. Well, let's just deal with this issue. Let's get you in for some work on your communication. Fine. All those things important. But they do nothing to address the issue And Mary's going to be right back where she was the next crisis that comes along because Mary was actually struggling with an idolatry issue whereby she described ultimate value to something other than God. And so sinful fear, be very clear on this, isn't caused by what's happening outside of us, but inside of us. I give you a number of Scripture texts there in your notes. I think that's page 2 towards the bottom. And you can feel free to read through those on your own. If what you most value, writes David Paulison, can be taken away or destroyed, then you set yourself up for anxiety. Perfect. 9.30. We're halfway through. We're about to shift gears then from the nature of sinful fear to the remedy. Let me pause. Are you all still with me? everyone's tracking, no one's thinking to themselves, I'm completely confused, I have no idea what he's talking about. And even if you felt that, there's no way you would admit it in this group. Any questions so far? Define idolatry. idolatry. It's simply that. It is ascribing something to an object that ultimately belongs to God. So you think of who our God is. It is when we ascribe anything that belongs to deity, our God alone, and we ascribe it to anything else. Usually that is value, worth. Anything else? Let me push the button then. There we go. The remedy for sinful fear. When we are gripped, reading from the top of page 3, when we are gripped with anxiety and fear, we're making an evaluation. Our souls are speaking and our innermost being is expressing what we believe and whom we do not believe. How do we handle these emotions that can overwhelm us? We put a stranglehold on them with the vice grips of truth. And so what we are going to do is look briefly at six truths. Again, time is against us, but it's okay. My goal is very simple. Uh, I mean, we could spend a half hour on just one of these. I want to give you all six. I trust the notes will be fruitful, beneficial. I'm going to present these kind of as if we were talking to Mary. So Mary's here. What should we say to her? Maybe not exactly like this. I'm not saying this is exactly what it would look like. But these six should come into the conversation at some point using wisdom. Uh, Somewhere along the way, some juncture, these six truths should come out. And I'm suggesting a number of uh, questions, sort of exercises that you can derive from these And so I trust this will be extremely, exceedingly beneficial. So six truths. Here's the first. I would make very clear to Mary, um, we need to obey God's command. God's command. What is God's command? We read it at the outset. Philippians 4, not 5. It's actually verse 6. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, Mary. It's a command. Do not be anxious about anything. The Lord is at hand. Is Paul speaking of the Lord's soon return or close proximity? Both are true. The main point is this, the God of peace is our God. And so I would run through and celebrate with Mary some tremendous truths. First of all, peace with God is secured by Christ's death because it satisfied God's justice. So I'd be taking her right back to the basics of the gospel. Take her to Isaiah 53, verse 5. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And so just back to the gospel, back to the shadow of the cross and reminder of her peace with God as rooted in, fixed upon Christ's atoning work. I'd also make clear that peace with God is offered freely to all who become one with Christ through faith. And so Romans 5.1, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God. Uh, Paul makes the same point. He states it negatively in Romans 8.1, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So back we go back to the basics, back to the fundamentals, back to the gospel of the Lord Jesus and her understanding what God, firstly, God has done for us in Christ and then how we become the beneficiaries of that. Through faith, we become one with the Lord Jesus. And then I'd remind you that peace with God is the fountain from which all other mercies flow. Everything comes, everything we enjoy comes from our position in Christ and God's grace toward us in Christ Jesus. And so Philippians 4, 7, the peace of God which surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and your minds. Last three words of that verse? In Christ Jesus. That's not a throwaway phrase. That actually unpacks the mechanism of how this works. The peace of God which surpasses all understanding incomprehensible the peace of God which is ultimately incomprehensible will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus it is a peace that flows from our relationship with the Lord Jesus and is rooted in his finished work and is rooted in what it means to be knit together with him by faith so that's where I would go to begin with never the wrong thing to do rehearse the gospel and celebrate together God's abounding mercy toward us in the Lord Jesus Christ. And I would ask her, whoa, 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 I must have held my thumb down there a little bit too long. I would ask a very simple question, Mary, are you obeying or disobeying? Let's cut to the quick here. And uh, we need to be very clear at the outset. Right now, the way you've been handling this situation, um, obedience or disobedience, and we actually want to hear her acknowledge it. That, yeah, something is off. And I, I do need help here. And I do need to get back into God's Word and seek to hear God's voice through His Word speaking into my situation. The second point I would make with her is this then, Mary, uh, we can control our thinking. Contrary to popular opinion, just look at me for a moment, you can control your thinking. Okay, you all look like you believe that. Most people don't think believe that. Think they're victims of their thinking, beyond their control. No, we can control our thoughts. Uh, Paul tells us that in 2 Timothy 1.7, God gave us a spirit, not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. It's the ninth fruit of the spirit, isn't it? Self-control. They, I, you know, I say this every time I go anywhere near this text at a counseling conference like this. I always say, and then I always forget to follow up on it. We need a session devoted to self-control. If there is anything lacking in our society, even among believers today, and if there is anything that requires a biblical solution and remedy, it is this. A lack, a complete lack of self-control and a self-deception whereby we think we are actually victims who cannot control ourselves. And yet scripture makes it clear, and I make this abundantly painfully clear to Mary, uh, we can control our thinking. A couple of helpful quotes there, the flesh plies deceit to knock out the watchman of your soul, your mind. Our minds are the watchman of our souls. Martin Lloyd-Jones, very good, very challenging. If you lie awake at night for hours, I can tell you what you've been doing. You've been going around in circles. You just go over the same old miserable details. That is not thought. That is the absence of thought, a failure to think. It means that something else is controlling your thought and governing it and leads to that wretched, unhappy state called worry. And so when it comes to worry and fear, we need to be careful. I'm I'm okay with this expression, panic attack. Sort of okay with it. But we need to be careful with it because any time we use the word attack, it implies what? Inherently. We have no control. This is something that's happened. We're, 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 vic- we're the victim here. I have absolutely no control. This is being imposed on me external to myself. Okay, okay. I'm making an allowance for that. That's fine. But not to the extent to which it is used today. And is actually, not, can be a very unhelpful category. Because when we use that expression, again, we are proverbially on the train track that we can now not get off. If we are using that expression, we immediately place ourselves on the train tracks, panic attack, something, someone attacks us. This is something going on outside of us. Ergo, the solution, the remedy must come from outside of me. And so this can actually be very unhelpful. And so we do want to emphasize and be very clear in terms of exercising self-control and controlling our thinking. And so the question I'd be asking Mary, this would dovetail into some kind of homework assignment. What dominates your thoughts? So I'd be asking her for a week or two to give some thought each day. At the end of the day, to think back in a journal, what were you thinking about today? Uh, When you are awake for two hours in the middle of the night, what were you thinking about? What is dominating your thoughts? And at the same time, you're seeking to cultivate healthy habits of thinking. That focuses on the devotional life. That's where biblical meditation comes in, the memorization of Scripture, and making sure then a great way of controlling the mind is when these thoughts come it is arresting those thoughts and replacing them with something else memorization memorization of scripture hymnody is wonderful songs christian music all sorts of things we can employ to be filling our minds with biblical what we would call healthy truths as opposed to obsessing over circumstances that then get a hold and a grip on us third issue or conversation I would have with Mary is this oh there's a little paragraph there at the bottom of page three isn't there yeah let me read it it might be helpful our minds are constantly dwelling on something and so everyone in this room you we all meditate right You know you do. You're on highway 30 going somewhere. You are meditating. You're thinking about something. Where does your mind go? Interesting question. Regrettably, many of us allow our minds to wander dangerously into the realm of enticing thoughts, discouraging thoughts, embittering thoughts, distracting thoughts. What we need is to fix our fluttering minds on God's word so that it governs our lives. We need to bring the truths of God to remembrance and seriously ponder them and apply them to ourselves. So there's your your target. There's your objective statement when it comes to Mary under that second category. Uh, The question, yes, what dominates your thoughts? Helpful text from Philippians 4.8. This is what ensures God's abiding presence. The third truth then with Mary, we need to develop a biblical view of reality. This might be something she's struggling with. And so Jerry Bridges writes in Respectable Sins, probably a book known to most of us, When I give way to anxiety, I am in effect believing that God does not care for me and that he will not take care of me in the particular circumstances that trigger my anxiety of the moment. It is a lack of acceptance of God's providence in our lives. And so we would go then to a text like Matthew 6, right? Sermon on the Mount. And we would seek to strangle anxious thoughts with biblical truth. And so you go to Matthew 6. Maybe it's been a while since you've read it. So turn there. Let's read it together. Christ is in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount. Beautiful, beautiful sermon. And He is waxing eloquent as He contrasts His teaching with that of the scribes and the Pharisees. And as the great lawgiver, the fulfillment of the promise of God's prophet, He expounds the law and the prophets. And in chapter 6, verse 25, look at what He declares. Therefore I tell you, Do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Now a wonderful analogy extracted from nature to teach us something of our God. Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? to God's providence over birds. And a tremendous reminder of God's power, God's sovereignty, God's provision, God's care, God's wisdom, all of these truths wrapped up in just this beautiful, seemingly trivial analogy. But it is powerful, isn't it? I mean, you think of the birds around here. And I don't know what kind of number it would be. You think of the number of birds that have ever lived since the foundation of the world. Could there be anything more trivial than a bird? And yet the Lord Jesus, I like to think that as he uttered these words, a bunch of birds just happened to fly, just happened to fly overhead at the time. And this tremendous reminder of God's power, God's care, God's provision, God's sovereignty, God's wisdom. And do not be anxious for anything. For if our God deals with the birds like this, then how is it He watches over us and deals with us? And then the second, the lilies of the field. Again, something so meaningless, trivial, here today, gone tomorrow. The implications of it all well, we know God's goodness dictates His providence, meaning He designs all things for our good. So we need to rehearse these biblical truths and develop a biblical view of reality. Things do not happen haphazardly. We are not the victims of circumstance or luck or chance or fate or anything else. These these neutral forces beyond our control. No, God's providence ruling over all things, even the birds of the air and the lilies of the field. And we know His goodness dictates His providence, meaning He designs all things for our good. We know His wisdom governs His providence, meaning He knows what is best for us. And we know His power accomplishes His providence Meaning he's in ultimate control. I take a look at my notes and I know exactly what you're thinking now. Those aren't in the notes and he went far too quickly through that. So here we go. Back to the beginning. We know his goodness dictates his providence. Meaning he designs all things for our good. You got that one? It's beautiful. We know his wisdom. There's one smart one in the audience. He's just snapping pictures of all the... Oh, two smart ones in the audience, snapping pictures. His wisdom governs His providence, meaning He knows what is best for us. And you know, We know His power accomplishes His providence, meaning He is in ultimate control. And so the question, graciously, lovingly, I would put to Mary at some point is simply this. Mary, do you have a biblical perspective? Really? Do you have a biblical perspective? And uh, that may require an intensive study over a prolonged period of time, a study of God's character. Knowing God's character can help us triumph over sinful fear. And there are a bunch of texts I would go to. I would give to her. Go home, read those. And you write out, you explain on a page or two how knowing God's character, meditating on God's character each day ought to help us, can help us, does help us triumph over sinful fear. Knowing God's promises, and again, just a sampling of texts, but they're enough, more than sufficient, to spend some time on an evening meditating over and writing down God's specific promises and then working through the logic, causality, how can these promises strengthen me to triumph over sinful fear? Knowing biblical doctrine can help us triumph over sinful fear. In particular, God's sovereignty. How do we understand the sovereignty of God? And how do we understand the the doctrine of God's providence? How do we understand Romans 8, 28, that God works all things together for good, for those who love Him and are called according to His purpose? And then knowing biblical history. And so you take uh, Mary back to some of those great texts in the Old Testament of saints who seemingly struggled had great cause to fear and struggled with anxiety. Where was their hope fixed? What truths did they meditate upon? The Psalms can be particularly helpful here. And in that final paragraph, again, that's your target. That's just to give you something to keep in view. What is my aim in all of this? It is to impart and make sure Mary understands there are no random events, freak accidents, chance encounters or rogue molecules. God's knowledge is perfect. He knows what was, what is, what will be, what can be, and what can't be. He knows all things perfectly, immediately, and distinctly at every moment. His power is perfect. He has never encountered difficulty, let alone impossibility. None can stay his hand or say to him, What have you done? Every detail of every life was in the mind of God before the foundation of the world. Oh, wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. And then the fourth truth. We admit that we are struggling with a heart issue. Oh, I'm going to have to move a little quicker here. Uh, Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Matthew 6.33 is an obvious text in which these two are placed before us. Uh, God's kingdom, his righteousness, and the Lord Jesus again in the Sermon on the Mount is making it clear that this is to be our priority. This is what we are to live for. This is what is to uh determine, dictate our 24-7, our problem. Let's take a moment, turn over there. Second Corinthians chapter 5, helpful text. Paul sums up, gets to the heart of so many of our issues right here so succinctly. Second Corinthians 5, 14 and 15. For the love of Christ controls us or compels us because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all that those who live might what? No longer live for themselves. I mean, the application there is infinite. But for him who for their sake died and was raised... Our problem by nature, because of the flesh, is what? We do live for ourselves. And because we live for ourselves, we tend to overvalue our perceived, self defined needs, dreams, values, feelings, etc., etc. And because we live for ourselves, we overvalue our needs, our dreams, We tend, thirdly, to attach our peace to those things. Things that were never intended to give us peace. We expect them to do for us what only God can do for us. And so very careful then with Mary under this fourth heading. We need to admit that we're struggling with a heart issue. This is the prevailing issue. This is the issue that needs to be addressed Because as you work through this with her, there is something she has identified. Her security, her dreams of that future life, whatever it is. And yes, that's fine, but she is overvaluing it to such a degree that she is now the victim. I'm using that word cautiously, advisedly. She's now the victim of her own what? Misplaced values. Misplaced expectations, misplaced feelings, misplaced dreams, and she has attached something to those things that does not belong to them. Peace itself. We're at peace only when our treasure is secure. And so the greatest question that Mary needs to wrestle through is what? Mary, what is your greatest treasure? Perfect love casts out fear. That's a helpful paradigm, I trust. Did I put that in the notes? Please say I did. No, okay, I'll pause here then. Perfect love casts out fear. And so as we grow in our, our love for the Lord, and as we grow in our appreciation of Him, our estimation of Him, our valuation of Him, and as love takes hold, some of the key expressions of love then become pivotal for pushing out sinful fear. Because you see, as we grow in love for God, we'll become more self-giving. Self-giving will push out self-protecting, which is a manifestation of fear. The great question as we grow in love will be, what can I give? The great question that occupies the fearful mind is what? What will I lose? As we grow in love, our appreciation for God, we will... Because we love him, love others, reach out. That's the manifestation of love. What's the fruit of fear? It is to move away and to move within. When love takes hold and we grow in love, it can cast out fear. And fear as love grows will be cast out. So seek First, the kingdom of God and His righteousness. And as we grow in that valuation of God and Himself, that will by nature force out sinful fear. Here's the fifth category. We calm and quiet our hearts. The text, Psalm 131, verse 2. I have calmed and quieted my soul. Notice the intentionality. This is an exercise. This is something he engages in. It's something he does purposefully. I have calmed and quieted my soul like a wean child with its mother. Like a weaned child is my soul within me. And so we might be struggling with inordinate longing, obstinate clinging, inordinate longing. When we overvalue something we want, the result is inordinate longing obstinate clinging when we overvalue something we have distrustful worrying when we give ultimate power to something we're concerned about distrustful worrying ungrateful murmuring when we aren't thankful with all that God has given us. That is a, and this is I'm being a bit quick here, I apologize for that, but that's a, a pretty good exercise to walk through with someone who's in the grips of sinful anxiety, sinful worry. These four categories, trying to identify in which of these, or perhaps there are multiple ones. Is the sinful anxiety being manifested most? Inordinate longing for something, obstinate clinging to something, distrustful worrying about something, or ungrateful murmuring. And these are clear post signs then, indicators. They tell us where to go and how to probe and start to draw direct lines between how this sinful worry is manifesting itself and what lies behind it and needs to be addressed so that the soul might be calmed and quieted. And so the question for Mary, are you engaged in a lively application of truth? Daily, what will it look like, Mary, for you to trust God because He is wise? And how will that speak to inordinate longing, obstinate clinging, distrustful worrying, ungrateful murmuring? What will it look like for you just today to trust God because He is wise? To trust God because He is sovereign. To trust God because He cares for you. That's a very helpful exercise. It gets right down, as we say, to the nitty-gritty. Just today, the next 24 hours, what is this trust, this confidence going to look like? As with intentionality, I seek to calm and quiet the soul. And then sixthly, Finally, with three minutes to spare, we learn we learn to rejoice at all times. Philippians four six. Back to our main text. In everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And a very fruitful, simple, and I'm not going to expand on this much exercise. Then to for us to go through regularly in our devotions. And certainly something that would have helped Mary, I don't doubt at all, is this simple question, what reasons do you have to thank God? What reasons do you have to thank God? It serves multiple purposes. One, it then cultivates that trust and strengthens faith. This is how God has dealt with me. This is how God has demonstrated his faithfulness. He is, therefore, a worthy object of faith. It stirs thanksgiving and worship, praise, adoration. Very helpful when we're in the grips of sinful anxiety because it becomes so consuming that we become so self-focused. But this simple exercise can help us lift our eyes off ourselves fix them where they belong upon God himself, and engage in robust, healthy worship, which often just makes the ground beneath our feet stabilize and solidify. And, and it can help us in terms of perspective. Whatever the problems are, whatever the issues are, whatever the circumstances might be, it helps us now to evaluate them in the light of a much bigger picture. Who our God is and what He has done for us. 30 seconds. Any questions as we conclude? Did you get all that? The last three blanks. We trust God. Oh, there we go. Because He's wise? Because he's sovereign? Because he cares for us. Beautiful. What was the for five, for five um, whoops, are you engaged in a lively application of truth? Lively application, are you actually applying it to your heart with the goal of quieting and calming the heart?